Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm James Wall, your host and PhD student in the University of Georgia History Department. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Brian Allen Drake, lecturer in the University of Georgia History Department and author of the forthcoming book, Loving Nature, Fearing the State, Environmentalism and Anti-Government Politics Before Reagan, soon to be released by the University of Washington Press in mid-September as part of its Weyerhaeuser Environmental Book Series. Conservative environmentalism may seem like a contradiction in terms, As Dr. Drake shows, however, public figures as seemingly different as Barry Goldwater, Henry David Thoreau, and Edward Abbey have more in common than previously thought. Through a series of biographical portraits, Dr. Drake illustrates the interesting yet complex relationship between conservative political ideology and post-war environmentalism. In doing so, Drake fashions a powerful argument that conservative anti-statist beliefs have simultaneously resisted and shaped the post-war environmental movement. So we are talking with Dr. Brian Drake of the University of Georgia. Thank you for sitting down with us. And we're going to be discussing his forthcoming book entitled, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Loving Nature, Fearing Government, Environmentalism and Anti-Government Politics Before Reagan. (laughs) I believe it's Loving Nature, Fearing the State, Ah, actually. Yeah, it changed slightly. Okay. Uh, We went through a lot of permutations of the title. Interesting. Well, the first question we always ask on... New Books in American Studies is, obviously, what led you to the topic, but also, this is your first book. It is my first book, yes. And uh, for, I guess, the more junior scholars like myself out there, could you sort of discuss the process in that sense of the word, <laughs> getting it out there? <laughs> we got all day. It's, it's, it's quite a process. Well, how did I get into it? That's a good question. You know, there were historiographical reasons, and there were also... Uh, uh, I guess personal reasons or family reasons. When I was in graduate school, uh, I was trained as an environmental historian. I went to the University of Kansas, and I studied under uh, Donald Worcester, the legendary environmental historian. And when I was in graduate school, I think conservative studies, so to speak, was a really hot topic. And um, I had a class with uh, uh, Professor uh, Bill Tuttle, and um, we did a lot on on, 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 the, the, the the new conservative historiography, and it it occurred to me that it might be kind of fun to put those two things together, try to be cutting edge in two different fields at the same time. And so that's sort of what was the genesis of that. Um, Personally as well, I happen to be raised in um, a a very politically conservative family. My father was a Goldwater man back in the 60s, Um, and and a Reagan man later. I mean, very typical very typical conservative, but my, my family has always been pro-environmentalist. Um, my father used to tell me, Brian, you know, the national parks are the only place where the government spends your money wisely. 
And I thought, and it, it, yeah, again, I didn't think anything of it when I was younger. But of course, when I, when I got older, I thought that's a very interesting thing to say, especially when conservatism by this point had gotten really pretty anti-environmental. Um, my, my mom's always been a, a recycler, uh, an opponent of sprawl. She's fought to prevent houses being built around where I grew up and that sort of thing. And I, I got just curious, where did, where did that come from? What's the, what's the roots of, of this very conservative environmental thing that my parents have? And so I, so I, sort of, I dug into it from there. So your intro is, is, is very interesting. You open the book and then you, you start to see a lot of strange bedfellows. <laughs> you start out with Henry David Thoreau. Right, right. And then, and then the next thing, you know, it's Edward Abbey, it's Barry mm-hmm. Goldwater. It's, uh, it's all of these, all these individuals that you wouldn't put together. How did you decide to tie these <laughs> figures together? I'll tell you what, that was one of the toughest parts of the book, actually, because I was very interested in, in precisely this, in strange bedfellows, like like people who don't seem ever to go together. Well, it turns out they have these commonalities. It, it, it was difficult because they were so different in so many other ways, but, you know, all, all of them shared this, this anti-status philosophy, and all of them shared uh, a, a deep and sincere love for nature, and that's one of the things that held, that held them together. And, I'm not, and, and it was, again, it was, it was uh, a struggle throughout the book to, to, to keep the commonalities front and center while not ignoring the differences. Um, but, yeah, they certainly are a, a fun combination. Everyone who does environmental history, I, th- I think, knows they're thorough. And it's not always appreciated what an anti-government guy he was, right? I mean, he's not just the man who stalks around Walden Pond. I mean, he was a social critic, and he had definitely strong opinions about the government. Um, and um, I had long been an, Ed, uh, an Edward Abbey fan, and, and those two just seemed to go together so nicely. And once I started doing research on Goldwater, it all sort of came together. Just the, the, the general idea, it seems to be, is that, that historians have sort of ignored or at least downplayed yeah. sort of the connections here between the historical moment where post-war environmentalism sort of meets yeah. anti-statism. Yeah. So what is it that you're sort of intervening with? Oh, okay. So why, so, so why, why have they played it down? Maybe right. a question. It seems... um, you know, generally, generally speaking, historians have treated environmentalism in the post-war period as like, a subdivision of liberalism, more broadly speaking, part of the affluent society idea, right? Um, kind of like civil rights or something, or or, or feminism, or or, or uh, but but not quite as important. It usually gets a paragraph or two, right? And in the, in the textbooks, and that's it. To me, it seemed like uh, when I was first putting this book together, it was always assumed to be exclusively liberal. It's predominantly liberal, I think. Uh, I mean, liberal in the post-war American definition. But um, uh, I just, I just, I historians get assumed it was always liberal because it had, it was liberal right now. Again, the, I think the conservatives have essentially jettisoned any environmental uh, sense of uh, proclivities they've had. So it's never occurred to anybody that it might, there might be this more complex ideology underneath it. And usually when people explain the origins of environmentalism, it's they'll draw on ideas like, like affluence and social class, that it's a function of being middle class. It's a function of desiring the amenities of the middle class lifestyle and no, no one, and no one ever thought about other motivations. Environmental battles are so profoundly ideological today. They seem to, they seem to pit different visions of the world. Why, why have we not looked at the, at the ideological background of the environmental movement? How does it interact with the great questions of political history? So that's what I right. wanted to do with this book. Part of it, the thing that makes the book so interesting is that it seems to straddle 
a few genres, yeah. at least a few. <laughs> uh, you, at, at times, it seems kind of uh, an intellectual history. At times, yeah. it seems political, mm-hmm. uh, and, and at times even cultural. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, were you? Did you set out to to take such a sort of multi-genre approach, or did that just happen with uh, the editing process? You know, I, 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 I did, I did. I've all, I've always, I've always loved cultural cultural history. I've loved intellectual history. I hate being constrained by one thing. There's so, there was so much I wanted to talk about, so it just sort of happened automatically. It is a lot of things at the same time. But then environmental history is a lot of things at the same time. I mean, that's one of its prime characteristics. Is it's it's very interdisciplinary and very broad, and it brings in all kinds of things. That's why I love it. That's why I got into it. And so I think all of it's not a surprise that, that books like this reflect that. Right. So, um, so where politics meet the environment uh we'll get to we'll get to goldwater eventually yeah. but, but it seems like a natural jumping off point is the anti-fluoridation debate mm-hmm. which which takes center stage uh, for a while in the right. book yeah and i think have a lot of modern day parallels mm-hmm. in terms of sort of that you describe sort of the, the impulse that you think is driving this because mm-hmm. that, that's a very interesting movement that i hadn't really heard much about uh, beyond, you know, Dr. Strangelove. And, right, right, know, right. Emphasis there. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to do was actually clear with the Dr. Strangelove thing yeah. a little bit. And I'm not the first historian to, to, to note that. That actually, you know, it wasn't, it's easy to characterize the anti-fluoridation movement as as, as the domain of, of you know, really paranoid right-wingers out of touch with reality. And, um, and actually, there's a lot more going on with that. And I thought, you know, in terms of politics, the things I, I, I loved about it is that it, it essentially brings together uh, the organic farming movement and extreme conservatism. You get people from such diverse such different ends of the of the pole coming together. And again, I, I do want to say as an environmental issue or as a perceived environmental issue, as you know from the book, I don't believe that Florida, if, you know, fluoridation is a, is a danger. I think that's got to be said. Um, that, but it was perceived as such by people, and that was, that was the important thing. So, Is the movement, I, is it still, did it have some traction? Or? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, boy, a, a casual spin through the internet, and you will find that that it does. It draws a lot of, on, on a lot of this, on a lot of the same ideas. Um, I mean, it's not a communist plot so much anymore, right? Since the, <laughs> since the Soviets inconveniently collapsed on us twenty years ago. But um, the, the 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 idea that that. Um, a consequence of an intrusive government that's trying to manage your health is actually poisoning you. That a consequence of government intervention is 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 bodily damage is still very much alive, and it still get draws from this, a, a lot of the same kind of people. Any fluoridation folks remain very conservative. A lot of them are very conservative. A lot of them are again from the organic farming movement, um, from uh, what they used to call the food faddist movement. You know, uh, so you know, it's, it's very much it's very much a going concern. I mean, it's. It's adjusted to historical context, of course, but and it seems like they are conservative in the sense that the government shouldn't be regulating so much, you know, what we put in our bodies. But it seems like that's these sorts of issues seem to be something that cuts across a wide swath of, of ideologies mm-hmm. because a lot of individuals that we would associate as being part of the organic movement right, right. today, yeah, are not exactly. You know, Goldwater conservative. Right, or, right. It's but you, you get all kinds. Of <laughs> sure. Nor are they though. Nor are they, are they are they kind of standard liberals either. I think one of the things you'll notice in, in the organic world today is 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 is, is, a, is a pretty intense fear of government too. That the government is is in the in, in the it's a handmaiden of industry trying to prevent us from 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 raising food in a healthy way. So 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that for me, again, for me, is one of the most amazing things about environmentalism is the way it cuts across ideologies, and it can be used by anybody across the spectrum sincerely and shaped to fit their needs. Yeah. And I don't know of too many other movements that are that have been that that widely uh, applicable that have been so protean, you know, as they say. Right. Speaking of conservatism, we, we have to get to Barry uh, at some point. Indeed, we do. Um, <laughs> such. Such an enigmatic figure. Yeah, yeah. It must have been frightening just to take on such a topic. <laughs> it was <laughs> conceptually. It know. was especially frightening because his papers were not organized at the time that I started, and I was a young graduate student. And I didn't realize that that was not normal. There were nine hundred and some feet that were essentially loose, shoved into boxes, left in the way they had been when um, when, when when he was a senator, and the staffers had put things in. And I uh, have since been been reorganized, and there's a fabulous uh, archivist, uh, Linda Whitaker, who, who oversaw that. Um, it, 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 you know, it was intimidating. Um, and my conception was Goldwater at the time. I mean, I, he was he was a cardboard cutout figure to me, and I think he is to a lot of people. You either loved him or hated him, but he was conservatism. He was the distilled essence of what post-war conservatism was, right? And it turns out he's a lot more complex than that. And that was really a joy. Like, I was stunned just how much I found when I started digging into the papers because it was an important part of his life. I mean, this was a guy whose love for nature was sincere. This is a guy who knew Arizona like the back of his hand. I mean, this was uh, a, a big part of who he was. We never hear about that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I hope that the book will at least complicate <laughs> Goldwater more than he is because he has seen as sort of the archetype yeah, of conservatism. But and then this is something that sort of struck me is that just the changing nature of conservatism. That if if Goldwater were here today, yeah, in, in terms of what we think of as conservative, right. he would look so different. Oh, absolutely, almost yeah. outside the mainstream, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, you, you probably know this story, right? That he once remarked to, to Bob Dole, I think it was, I never dreamed that we would be the liberals of the Republican Party. And certainly, I, you know, he, he, of course, he was not happy with some of the directions that conservatism went. Right? He was kind of famously concerned about about the religion. Rights. He uh, even endorsed a Democrat for Congress at one point, and I think his thoughts about environmentalism were similar. He just before he he died, he was made an honorary member and accepted an honorary membership in this group called Republicans for Environmental Protection. They've changed their name. I think they're now Conserve America, but this was a group that said two things. One, the Republican Party has a long history, and conservatism has a long history of environmental protection. And two, we should be embracing that, not turning our back on it. And the fact that he would associate with them to say that, again, he's, you know, he, he, he had, the conservatism had changed, and he had been kind of, I guess, pushed aside or, or, or something, or he no longer felt like it represented his his interests. And that was true with, again, with religious rights, with, with, with gay rights, and I think with the environment as well. And things seem to I don't know if it's intentionally or just a, you know, the chronology here, but the book seems to be split into sort of 1970 <laughs> is so yeah. seminal oh, yeah, in yeah. terms of a turning point. Mm -hmm. And with Goldwater, it seemed like in 64, he's trying so hard to be conservative yeah. and be Goldwater yes, and yeah. what he thought Goldwater was. Right. And then by 70, he changes his tune around this, yeah. around this time. Mm -hmm. And he does this, I guess, throughout his, his life and sort of two steps forward, one step back as yeah. an environmentalist. Yes, yes. What, what is driving him to and from all these positions? Well, well, big thing to notice is that, that, that not only is he not a cardboard figure, he also responds to, 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 to historical change. He's not this sort of, sort of man frozen in time, right? He, he, is, he is adjusting 
two circumstances. And what happens in 1970 is essentially the blossoming of the post-war environmental movement. Between 1964 and 70, a lot happens. I mean, we have we have uh, the, the the fallout, so to speak, of, of Rachel Carson uh, and Silent Spring. We have again the, the the counterculture, the new left, civil rights. We have Earth Day, which is a big uh, a, a, a big event. Environmental concerns come to the forefront in those in those years. And so by the time he comes back into office, he can, he's run for president in 64, and he's defeated, and he's, so he's out of office for a while. By the time he, he's come back, that historical change has influenced him to the extent where he's actually considering you know, major federal intervention to protect the environment. That's stunning, really. I mean, this is a guy for I – mean, I I can't. You, know, you can almost count on one hand the number of times he, he would support federal intervention for anything. But here he is making the case, and, and, and again, it is two two steps forward, one step back. Later on, he gets kind of buyer's remorse, right? Because again, the EPA does what it was supposed to do, which is regulate. And this is a guy who doesn't appreciate that. As as, as the Reagan era approaches, you know, he's influenced by that too, and so he so he sort of pulls back a little bit from from his nineteen seventy self. But I think that's I think that's that's a really cool story because here's a guy again who who is much more complex and much more human than, than he's been given credit for. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it seemed to be that is it politics, political reality that's driving him <laughs> in a certain direction, or is it ideology in spite of the, the political uh, climate? Oh, uh, is, is this sincere or not? Is that, is yeah. that the question? I'm, I guess that's that, that was one of my sure sure. You know, you're not, it's a great question when you're not the first to ask. Um, I suppose uh, maybe someone else would disagree with me, but based on thinking about Barry Goldwater for a long time and, and, and digging deep into his papers, you know, what you see is what you get with Barry Goldwater. He's not, he was not the kind of guy who was going to, you know, he's not, as, as we would say, a politician. He wouldn't put on a false front in order to, to, to get votes or do anything. He was, he was, he, he I think he was, he was, he did, he was honest about how he felt about things. And I think his environmentalism was honest. It was not like Richard Nixon's. I mean, Richard Nixon's embrace of, of environmentalism, as uh, J. Brooks Flippin's book tells us, is, it was a lot about votes. Not for, not for Goldwater. This was sincere. I don't think he had to pander to anybody in Arizona to get elected. He was so popular. It, it, didn't, you know, it didn't matter. So no, this, I think he absolutely meant it. The one thing I, I wanted so much more of was... was <laughs> Was Reagan, uh, yeah. and then we start to see him at the end, and then he and then he exits yes, uh, off stage. It. But you have this this era, which is pre nineteen eighty, which is it's acceptable mm-hmm. to be conservative yes. and also yeah. be an environmentalist, and then. And then from Reagan on, it's almost like the hammer drops. Yeah, yeah. You know, what accounts for this sort of sudden change in, <laughs> in attitude where, and as you say in the book, Reagan's not a nature hater right, by right, any right, means. Right, right. So what, so what happened to conservative environmentalism in essence? I think, first of all, well, that's a topic for another book. Right? I think that, that could really be a cruel one, too. In my sense, um, what, what you got in the 1970s as a result of, of, of all sorts of things is, is a kind of shift in the, in the Republican Party to the right and increase increasing anti-statism. I mean, as a result, uh, I mean, some of it has to do with, I think, the Southern strategy, right, in order to pick up those those disgruntled Democrats who are mad about the civil rights uh, movement and, and the party's embrace of that. You you hammer on the excessive federal government, right, uh, getting on your back. And when you're going to do that, you eliminate room as a consequence for things like federal regulation, of, 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 of federal environmental regulation, right? You eliminate 
room for that. Um, and uh, lots of events in the 70s, of course, make the, the, the Reagan-style intense anti-statist belief make sense. And I mean, Reagan was so immensely, so immensely popular in the 80s, or and it was the Reagan strategy was so effective that. The need and the desire for for a conservative environmentalism passed. It became, environmentalism became just another regulatory obstacle mm-hmm. that had to be eliminated. So, in the one sense, you have Reagan, who seems to be a very political mm-hmm. animal, in the mm-hmm. sense that his opposition may not be as sincere, seeing as he's pretty right. much a, yeah, a nature right. lover. Right. Goldwater, though, a nature lover, but he's not going to. He doesn't change as much in terms of, uh, like you said, right, pandering, right, yeah. pandering for yes, political reasons. Right. But yeah, I think that may have, that may have something to do with. I mean, Goldwater was a legit outdoorsman too, right? I mean, this was a guy. If, if I was going to go hiking in Arizona, he would have been one of the people I would have asked where to go. And I wonder again his deep commitment to the to the landscape. And he was a wonderful photographer, and he had a great. It's one of the one of the main reasons why he wasn't going to shift and pander because he, he was truly concerned, and so this is deeply personal for him. So. I think it what was it the quote from Reagan about the redwoods? Yeah, he wanted to expand the redwood. They all, all the trees look the same. same What is the difference between adding a few more? Right, right, right. So that just sort of sticks out as uh, as a turning point, but but one that I think, like you said, perhaps a book number two for for Brian Drake. Maybe maybe other potential (laughs) book number twos, I suppose. Um, This big term of free market environment. Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. Which is so makes your head explode to to think of it. Indeed. Can you sort of unpack that that idea for people who might not be as uh, as familiar? (laughs) Okay, real quickly. um, and I do unpack it a little bit in the book. Free market environmentalism is the idea that that the incentives of property rights and profit and ownership are not only well equipped, but they're ideal for environmental protection. Sort of at, at its, I mean, it's more complex than this, but at its purest, to privatize, if we privatize as much as possible, privatization gives you an inherent interest. The argument goes in 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 the resource that you own, and therefore it follows that you will protect it. And so, what we ought to be doing is not having the federal government managing land for, for instance, um, national forests, national parks. They should be privatized, owned by individuals or maybe owned by groups or something, and. and that the, the incentives of ownership are much more powerful um, than regulatory controls. They're also more fair. That, that regulatory environmentalism is a kind of command and control thing that 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 does violence to our rights and, and is unaware of local conditions, so on and so forth. In fact, the regulatory structure should be eliminated, and we should also rely on essentially tort law to enforce environmental quality. If my pollution goes onto your property, then you can sue me in the courts and we can settle it that way. And that's, that's preferable. Um, and it runs directly, historically why it's interesting is it runs directly ca- and counter to, to the way environmentalism is unfolded in America in the 20th century. The idea has been the federal government has to be, has to do it because it's the only thing powerful enough to counteract the industries that are polluting and so on and so forth. It turns progressive conservation for those who keep track of these sorts of things on its head. It's the mirror image of it. Yeah. It almost seems like free market environmentalism. I was like, this just sounds like conservatism straight up. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like a, yeah. almost in a way, but, but you, you take a very balanced approach yeah. to it in the sense that it, you're willing to, to concede that the criticism that you know, yes. the federal government has not always had 
the best interests. <laughs> <laughs> clearly has not always been the best. Yeah, I, I think sure. I mean, our, our, our inclination might be to d- dismiss them as sort of shills for corporate America or something. Mm-hmm. But no, the free market movement's more sophisticated than that. I mean, they are right. The, the, the federal government, I think, has, has, had, has often done a very bad job of environmental management. I mean, there are legions of books on this. There, there's stuff on, 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 the, on the bureaucratic incentives for environmental mismanagement is really, is really uh, I, think, I think, very, very, very sophisticated and worth thinking about. I mean, it's difficult once you've read enough of their literature really to sit back and assume that, that, that federal environmentalism is automatically the way to go. There may be other options, you know. You, I think at one point in the book, said that sort of evaluating this, this, this love of nature and mm-hmm. fear of government as an exercise in frustration. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that really struck me as, as interesting because uh, it seems like the one criticism that you, you want to guard mm-hmm. your left flank against is uh, the, the idea that these are just a bunch of outliers mm-hmm. or wackos. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would you say to sort of that idea that, you know, these are more outliers and, you know, what's the sense in, in studying them? Oh, because, oh, because, well, well, because, you know, they, they were a little more influential than perhaps you might think initially. Um, a number of uh, George W. Bush administration had a couple of famous free marketers as advisors. Um, the Republican Party generally has, has certainly talked a lot about free market environmentalist policy, whether they've done it is another answer to the question. But I mean, they, 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 they are more important than you might imagine. And I mean, debate and generally speaking, debates over the role of government in our lives and debates over property rights, that is nothing if not absolutely mainstream in American history. So they may be somewhat outliers, but um, what they talk about is not is not marginal. And also, I didn't want I didn't want to um, the reverse of that is one of the things I wanted to do in the book as well is show that environmentalism has been so prominent, such an important idea that it has made it all the way out into the edges, right? You read somebody like uh, Sam, Sam Hayes, who's kind of the, 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 the preeminent expert in American post-war environmentalism. Um, his environmentalism is very much a movement of the middle class. And I think it, I think it is, but we never appreciated what almost everybody's been touched by it. Again, even out, out here on, on the ideological fringes. Right. So use the term status anxiety when, when discussing the anti authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's often been lobbed as, as criticism. Mm, yeah, right, yeah. But it seems like it, it's more complex than that. Oh yeah. The, the portrait that comes out. Oh book. sure. You would say it's more than just this sort of status anxiety that's driving yes. these movements. Um yeah. I mean what's driving it I think is uh again are our genuine fears of chemical contamination in the post war world. It's 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 not paranoid necessarily to worry about fluoride. Again, in the end, I don't believe fluoride is harmful, but it's not all that crazy to be worried about it when you live in a world uh, where DDT is discovered to be not a not a miracle cure, but actually a very dangerous substance. When you have like things like aminotriazole, when you have radioactive fallout, all of these substances which pose real dangers to people. So simply dismissing them, I think, as sort of kooks and status-anxious people is, is to miss the important context where these things made sense. Well, I think one of, the, one of the ideas that you deal with is that this isn't inevitable, that, that the, the sort of rightward turn away from, you know, mm-hmm. environmental mm-hmm. concerns is not, not always an inevitable development. Yeah. And so with that in mind, do you ever see the GOP, or I guess <laughs> beyond the GOP, right. sort of conservatism in general, warming up to the idea that environmental concerns are valid. Yeah. Um, well, there certainly are conservatives right now who, who are environmentalists and, and, and do believe that there are environmental 
dangers and environmental problems that need to be addressed. But will the party ever? Im- I can't see the future, of course. No one can. Historians are pretty bad about predicting the future. I don't know. It's going to be hard. I feel like uh, just my gut sense is the Reagan legacy, the legacy of, again, this really intense anti-statism, a real deeply emotional contempt for, for, for the regulatory state that I, that I sense is, is very common in the party. It's going to be hard to let go. Mm-hmm. I think some of, the, some of the struggles they're having right now adjusting to demographic change and things is, 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 a, is a reflection of that. The, the Reagan worldview has worked so well for so long. Realizing that we're, we're no longer in a world where, where that is so effective is going to be tough. So we talk about Goldwater, and it seems like when, when you stack Goldwater against a guy like Edward Abbey, he almost looks really mainstream. <laughs> he almost looks yeah. just like a regular guy. Well, yeah, see, there's, uh, yeah, there's a lesson. But Abbey is just such a character, isn't he? Well, he is, he is, he was. How did you stumble upon him as as, as another fellow <laughs> to, to get to get involved? Well, in, in environmentalist circles, he's very well known. He's one of the most famous American environmental writers. He, he's often mentioned, you know, the Pantheon is Rachel Carson, Thoreau, Muir, uh, Aldo Leopold, and Edward Abbey is on, is on there. I first encountered him in high school, actually. And, uh, I went on a high school backpacking trip. Uh, my teacher was a big Abbey fan, and he had us read Edward Abbey's most famous book, which was called Desert Solitaire. And that's where I first heard of the guy. And again, it was it was clear even to my 17-year-old self that here was an interesting dude. And I'd never lost my... I never lost my fascination with Abby. I mean, Abby has many, many warts, Lord knows. But despite that fact, I thought, I, I still think he's had some very interesting and powerful things to say. And so um, he just seemed so ideal for this project that I, that, I, that I stuck with him for all these years. And in fact, he made him one of the inspirations for it. I wanted to know where he came from because he does have this, again, very interesting political view of the world. In a way, I thought he was one of the most, I guess, out of, out of this group, yeah. the one who certainly seems to have the biggest love for nature. Yeah. To, yeah. Not to downplay right. Goldwater. No, no, but he, he does. Degree. And you compare him, I think, at some point to sort of John Muir and, and others mm-hmm. before him, these sort of uncompromising. Yes. Intensely love of nature, yes. but at the same time, he, he is almost the embodiment of the title mm-hmm. of your book. <laughs> yes. But, but to the extreme, right? I mean, he is loving yes. nature yes. and really fearing the government. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was a, you know, he was, he was an advocate sometimes at least of biocentrism, right? The, uh, this 1970s environmental philosophy, uh, about the rights of non-human things. He used to talk about the rights of rocks. Yeah, he did. I mean, really kind of edgy stuff, right? And what Lord knows, his, again, his, his, his disdain for government was intense. It helps to have, a, uh, have an anarchist Marxist father. How is his legacy, I guess, uh, and I guess you're partly shaping that now, how is he perceived nowadays? <laughs> and sort of how has it changed over time? Well, that's, a very, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't know that I'm shaping his legacy, but... Uh, <laughs> well, I hope that we are... Your book can at least balance things. Maybe with historians. Yeah. I mean, he's not gotten a lot of. He's not. He, I mean, historians dislike him for a, for a lot of for a lot of good and obvious reasons. I mean, his, his 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 racism, his sexism, his simplistic, sometimes simplistic understanding of wilderness as a kind of timeless, changing landscape, which of course reads out Native Americans and all kinds of people who actually lived on the land and changed it in big ways. For environmentalists, it sort of depends on who you are. You may love him for his uncompromising love 
of in defense of wilderness. If you believe immigration is a threat to the nation's environmental quality, which some people do, you might find him uh, someone you like because he's going to use intensely anti-immigration. For uh, for others, he, he was he was and he was too extreme. He was too. Uh, I mean, that he would inspire a group like Earth First, which was you know advocating you know physical sabotage of logging equipment and so on and so forth. I mean, that that he gets in some pretty dodgy territory. So, um, I mean, I, 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 I'm similarly ambivalent. I think he's a fabulous writer. I think he brings up a lot of really interesting, provocative points. But you know, I have my problems with him as well. You know, right. So, and I think the ultimate, ultimately, you refer to him as a critic of high modern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I think so. You know, yeah. It occurred to me. You know, I read, I read James Scott's book. You know, and that was kind of influential for me. And just listening to what Abby railed against. I mean, one of his biggest targets in life was 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 the infrastructure of high modernism, right? And, I, and, and, and he actually literally hated high modernism. Any glassy, any glassy building. He once said in, uh, in, the, in the beginning of Desert Solitaire, "Throw my throw my book into, into into something tall and glassy after you're done with it." Right. Um, so yeah, I think of him as a kind of yeah, as a kind of uh, whiskey swilling, shotgun toting opponent of high modernism. Yeah. And then he certainly sticks in the reader's mind to a large degree. In terms of what I yeah. came away with, was just a sense of yeah. everything is so much more complicated than, than you initially thought, whether it's Goldwater mm-hmm. or Abbey or, I mean, even Nixon. I mean, yeah. all of these characters that we had a one-dimensional portrayal of. Yeah as just wackos or conservatives, yep. we're, we're, we're complicated. And for historians, you know, historians in particular, when they talk about Abby, they, they, they essentially portray him as a guy who is stuck in a 19th century world when it comes to wilderness, this idea that wilderness is untouched, that it never had any human occupation or any human, uh, it never felt the, the, the hand of humans or any kind of management at all, and that he, that he was a, a sort of modern purveyor of this discredited idea you know, that, you know, that belonged to the world of I guess, 19th century elites. And I worked hard to put Abby in context. That no, you got to understand that his wilderness is very much a 20th century wilderness. It's a Cold War wilderness. It's a suburban sprawl wilderness. It's it's very much an idea shaped by the by, by the events of his day. And that's worth pointing out. That's good. That makes it more sophisticated than I think some people have have, have said. I mean, his his wilderness ideas and his political critique cannot be separated. Right. And as far as I know, nobody's talked about that. So yeah. The one thing I guess we'll close with his end yeah. on, on Earth. Yes. His, his end to the environment. <laughs> his, his instructions for his funeral. Like, yes. Even at the very end. Yep. And I couldn't, I don't remember it verbatim, but what was it he wanted to... Essentially, be, wrap me in my anarchist flag, disregard all state laws regarding yeah. the <laughs> Even if he yeah. makes a, a point to explicitly say, whatever laws yeah. are on the books, yep. forget yep. about it. Absolutely. Bury Absol- me in my yes. anarchist. A- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, was- and on top of that, uh-huh. bury me. It's like, I guess bury me so I can fertilize yes. a cat right. or, or a tree or, or something like he that. He is apparently, because his burial location is known, actually. It's uh, only a few people know where it is. He's somewhere on public land in Arizona. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and his, his last words apparently were no comment, which, which I think is hilarious that he had the presence of mind to do that. But yeah, absolutely. I, anarchist, anti-government guy till the end. Uh, a little different, of course, from, from, from the Goldwaters and, and Reagan's in that he was deeply in the capitalist too. We can forget capitalism in the state where, or, you know, partners in crime. Mm-hmm. 
and, and that, that he gets a lot from his father, who yeah. was a Marxist, and from growing up in coal country. Yeah, he was more diametrically opposed to that, but, but Goldwater seems to be always struggling to mesh this, yeah. this love of, of capitalism and free enterprise yes. with nature. I guess the question he's trying to answer is, are the two, can they cohabitate? And he never comes to an answer, does he? I mean, mm-hmm. he's back and forth. I mean, Abby's answer was no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Hard to imagine somebody more anti-statist than, than, than Goldwater, but Abby certainly yeah. was. He said, I mean, he makes Goldwater in a lot of ways look like a absolutely middle-of-the-road ranging moderate. So I think that that's, that's the thing right here. Is that, uh, do not lump anybody into this one male model of this category. So to, to wrap up, it seems, and I'm not, I'm not to put words in your mouth, but it, it seems like the, the general idea driving the book is that post-war envir- environmentalism mm-hmm. much more broad than we initially yes. imagined mm-hmm. it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you sort of agree that with future scholarship, it would be good to sort of take this multi-genre approach and sort of broaden what it means to be a post-war environmentalist. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Certainly, I want people to think environmentalism is even more than a movement. In some ways, it's a really profound sea change in the way people view their relationship to the natural world, and that we should explore the way that manifests itself in all of its intricacies. And this is just one of the ways. Again, looking for, for it in places that you wouldn't expect it. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to see us. I, 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 in some ways, I think of this as 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 as, as another step towards a, I mean, a, a really really deep and in, in, in complex understanding of, of, of environmentalism. Absolutely. So, so. Well, we all look forward to the book coming yeah. out. No friends. And uh, when when can we expect to see it hit the shelves? Well, uh, its official release date is the 1st of October 2013, but we're ahead of schedule, apparently, and it's supposed to be on the bookshelf in the middle of September. So mid-September, University of Washington you know Press. What? University of Washington Press, Warehouser Environmental Series. Fantastic. Well, thank you for talking. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.